Not only was there no longer any public recognition of God, no, not throughout the length and breadth of the land, but on every side he was openly insulted and defied by Baal worshippers. Daily the tide of evil rose higher and higher, until it had now swept practically everything before it. And Elijah was very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, 1 Kings 19.10, and longed to see his great name vindicated and his backslidden people restored. Thus it was the glory of God and true love for Israel which actuated his petition. Here then is the outstanding mark of a righteous man whose prayers prevail with God. Though one of tender sensibilities, yet he puts the honor of the Lord before every other consideration. And God has promised, Them that honor me I will honor. 1 Samuel 2.30 Alas, how frequently these words are true of us. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. James 4.3 We ask amiss when natural feelings sway us, when carnal motives move us, when selfish considerations actuate us. But how different was it with Elijah? He was deeply stirred by the horrible indignities against his master and longed to see him given his rightful place again in Israel. And it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. The prophet failed not his object. God never refuses to act when faith addresses him on the ground of his own glory, and clearly it was on that ground Elijah had supplicated him. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 It was there at that blessed throne that Elijah obtained the strength which he so sorely needed at that time. Not only was he required to keep his own skirts clear from the evil all around him, but he was called upon to exercise a holy influence upon others, to act for God in a degenerate age, to make a serious effort to bring back the people to the God of their fathers. How essential it was then that he should dwell much in the secret place of the Most High, that he should obtain that grace from him which alone could fit him for his difficult and dangerous undertaking. Only thus could he be delivered from evil himself, and only thus could he hope to be instrumental in delivering others. Thereby equipped for the conflict, he entered upon his path of service endued with divine power. Conscious of the Lord's approbation, assured of the answer to his petition, Sensible that the Almighty was with him, Elijah boldly confronted the wicked Ahab and announced the divine judgment on his kingdom. But let us pause for a moment so that this weighty fact may sink into our minds, for it explains to us the more than human courage displayed by the servants of God in every age. What was it made Moses so bold before Pharaoh? What was it that enabled the young David to go forth and meet the mighty Goliath? What was it that gave Paul such strength to testify as he did before Agrippa? From whence did Luther obtain such resolution that, though every tile on the roofs were a devil, he would continue his mission? In each case the answer is the same. Supernatural strength was obtained from a supernatural source. Only thus can we be energized to wrestle with the principalities and powers of evil. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40, 
29-31 But where had Elijah learned this all-important lesson? Not in any seminary or Bible training college, for if there were such in that day, they were like some in our own degenerate time, in the hands of the Lord's enemies. Nor can the schools of orthodoxy impart such secrets. Even godly men cannot teach themselves in this lesson, much less can they impart it to others. Ah, my reader, as it was at the backside of the desert, Exodus 3.1, that the Lord appeared to and commissioned Moses, so it was in the solitudes of Gilead that Elijah had communed with Jehovah and had been trained by him for his arduous duties. There he had waited upon the Lord, and there had he obtained strength for his task. None but the living God can effectually say unto his servant, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41.10 Thus granted the consciousness of the Lord's presence, his servant goes forth as bold as a lion, fearing no man, kept in perfect calm amid the most trying circumstances. It was in such a spirit that the Tishbite confronted Ahab. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand. But how little that apostate monarch knew of the secret exercises of the prophet's soul ere he thus came forth to address his conscience. There shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Very striking and blessed is that. The prophet spoke with the utmost assurance and authority, for he was delivering God's message, the servant identifying himself with his master. Such should ever be the demeanor of the minister of Christ. We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen. And the word of the Lord came unto him. Verse 2. How blessed! Yet this is not likely to be perceived unless we ponder the same in the light of the foregoing. From the preceding verse we learn that Elijah had faithfully discharged his commission. And here we find the Lord speaking anew to his servant. Thus we regard the latter as a gracious reward of the former. This is ever the Lord's way, delighting to commune with those who delight to do his will. It is a profitable line of study to trace this expression throughout the scriptures. God does not grant fresh revelations until there has been a compliance with those already received. We may see a case of this in the early life of Abraham. The Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee unto the land that I will show thee. Genesis 12.1 But instead he went about halfway and settled in Haran, 11.31 And it was not until he left there and fully obeyed that the Lord again appeared to him. 12 verses 4 through 7 And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith. Verses 2 and 3 An important practical truth is hereby exemplified. God leads his servants step by step. Necessarily so, for the path which they are called to tread is that of faith, and faith is opposed to both sight and independency. It is not the Lord's way to reveal to us the whole course which is to be traversed. Rather does he restrict his light to one step at a time, that we may be kept in continual dependence upon him. This is a most salutary lesson. Yet it is one that the flesh is far from relishing, especially in those who are naturally energetic and zealous. Before he left Gilead for Samaria to deliver his solemn message, the prophet would no doubt wonder what he should do as soon as it was delivered. 
but that was no concern of his then. He was to obey the divine order and leave God to make known what he should do next. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Ah, my reader, had Elijah then leaned unto his own understanding, we may depend upon it that hiding himself by the brook Cherith is the last course he would have selected. Had he followed his instincts, yea, had he done that which he considered most glorifying to God, would he not have embarked upon a preaching tour throughout the towns and villages of Samaria? Would he not have felt it his own bounden duty to do everything in his power calculated to awaken the slumbering conscience of the public, so that his subjects, horrified at the prevailing idolatry, would bring pressure to bear upon Ahab to put a stop to it? Yet that was the very thing God would not have him to do. What then are reasoning and natural inclinations worth in connection with divine things? Nothing. And the word of the Lord came to him. Note that it is not said the will of the Lord was revealed to him or the mind of God was made known. We would particularly emphasize this detail for it is a point on which there is no little confusion today. There are numbers who mystify themselves and others by a lot of pious talk about obtaining the Lord's mind or discovering God's will for them, which when carefully analyzed amounts to nothing better than a vague uncertainty or a personal impulse. God's mind, or will, my reader, is made known in his word, and he never wills anything for us which to the slightest degree clashes with that heavenly rule. Changing the emphasis, note, the word of the Lord came to him. There was no need for him to go and search for it. See Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. And what a word it was that came to Elijah. Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. Verse 3. Verily God's thoughts and ways are indeed entirely different from ours. Yes, and he alone can make known. Psalm 103, 7. The same unto us. It is almost amusing to see how commentators have quite wandered from the track here, for almost all of them explain the Lord's command as being given for the purpose of providing protection for his servants. As the death-dealing drought continued, the agitation of Ahab would increase more and more, and as he remembered the prophet's language that there should be neither dew nor rain, but according to his word, his rage against him would know no bounds. Elijah, then, must be provided with a refuge if his life was to be spared. Yet Ahab made no attempt to slay him when next they met. 1 Kings 18 verses 17 through 20 should it be answered that was because God's restraining hand was upon the king we answer granted but was not God able to restrain him all through the interval no the reason for the Lord's order to his servant must be sought elsewhere and surely that is not far to ascertain once it be recognized that next to the bestowment of his word and the Holy Spirit to apply the same the most valuable gift he grants any people is the sending of his own qualified servants among them, and that the greatest possible calamity which can befall any land is God's withdrawal of those whom he appoints to minister unto the soul, then no uncertainty should remain. The drought on Ahab's kingdom was a divine scourge, and in keeping therewith the Lord told his prophet, Get thee hence. The removal of the ministers of his truth is a sure sign of God's displeasure. 
a token that he is dealing in judgment with the people who have provoked him to anger. It should be pointed out that the Hebrew word for hide, 1 Kings 17.3, is an entirely different one from that which is found in Joshua 6, verses 17 and 25, Rahab's hiding of the spies, and in 1 Kings 18, verses 4 and 13. The word used in connection with Elijah might well be rendered, Turn ye eastward and absent thyself, as it is in Genesis 31:49. Of old the psalmist had asked, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? 74, verse 1. And what was it that caused him to make this plaintive inquiry? What had happened to make him realize that the anger of God was burning against Israel? This, they have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet. Verses 7 through 9. It was the doing away with the public means of grace which was the sure sign of the divine displeasure. Ah, my reader, little as it may be realized in our day, there is no surer and more solemn proof that God is hiding his face from a people or nation than for him to deprive them of the inestimable blessings of those who faithfully minister his holy word to them. For as far as heavenly mercies excel earthly, so much more dreadful are spiritual calamities than material ones. Through Moses the Lord had declared, My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Deuteronomy 32.2 And now all dew and rain was to be withheld from Ahab's land, not only literally so, but spiritually so as well. Those who ministered his word were removed from the scene of public action. See 1 Kings 18.4 If further proof of the scripturalness of our interpretation of 1 Kings 17.3 be required, we refer the reader to, And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. Isaiah 30:20. What could be plainer than that? For the Lord to remove his teachers into a corner was the sorest loss his people could suffer. For here he tells them that his wrath shall be tempered with mercy, that though he give them the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet he would not again deprive them of those who ministered unto their souls. Finally, we would remind the reader of Christ's statement that there was great famine in the land in Elijah's time, Luke 4.25, and link up with the same, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. Chapter 4. The Trial of Faith And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. 1 Kings 17 verses 2 and 3. As pointed out in our last chapter, it was not merely to provide Elijah with a safe retreat, to protect his servant from the wrath of Ahab and Jezebel, that Jehovah so commanded the prophet, 
but to signify his sore displeasure against his apostate people. The withdrawal of the prophet from the scene of public action was an additional judgment on the nation. We cannot forbear pointing out that tragic analogy which now obtains more or less in Christendom. During the past two or three decades, God has removed some eminent and faithful servants of his by the hand of death, and not only has he not replaced them by raising up others in their stead, but an increasing number of those who still remain are being sent into seclusion by him. It was both for God's glory and the prophet's own good that the Lord bid him get thee hence, hide thyself. It was a call to separation. Abraham was an apostate, and his consort was a heathen. Idolatry abounded on every side. Jehovah was publicly dishonored. The man of God could have no sympathy or communion with such a horrible situation. Isolation from evil is absolutely essential if we are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. James 1.27 Not only separation from secular wickedness, but from religious corruption also. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Ephesians 5.11 Has been God's demand in every dispensation. Elijah stood as the Lord's faithful witness in a day of national departure from himself, and having delivered his testimony to the responsible head, the prophet must now retire. To turn our backs on all that dishonors God is an essential duty. But where was Elijah to go? He had previously dwelt in the presence of the Lord God of Israel, before whom I stand, he could say, when pronouncing sentence of judgment unto Ahab, and he should still abide in the secret place of the Most High. The prophet was not left to his own devisings or choice, but directed to a place of God's own appointing, outside the camp, away from the entire religious system. Degenerate Israel was to know him only as a witness against themselves. He was to have no place and take no part in either the social or religious life of the nation. He was to turn eastward, the quarter from which the morning light arises, for those who are regulated by the divine precepts shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, John 8:12. By the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. Jordan marked the very limits of the land. Typically, it spoke of death, and spiritual death now rested upon Israel. But what a message of hope and comfort the Jordan contained for one who was walking with the Lord. How well calculated was it to speak unto the heart of one whose faith was in a healthy condition? Was it not at this very place that Jehovah had shown himself strong on behalf of his people in the days of Joshua? Was not the Jordan the very scene which had witnessed the miracle working power of God at the time when Israel left the wilderness behind them? It was there the Lord had said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. Joshua 3.7 It was there that the living God, verse 10, made the waters to stand up upon a heap, verse 13, so that all the Israelites passed over on dry ground, verse 17. Such are the things which should and no doubt did fill the mind of the Tishbite when his master ordered him to this very place. If his faith was in exercise, his heart would be in perfect peace, knowing that a miracle-working God would not fail him there. It was also for the prophet's own personal good 
that the Lord now bid him hide thyself. He was in danger from another quarter than the fury of Ahab. The success of his supplications might prove a snare. Tending to fill his heart with pride and even to harden him against the calamity then desolating the land. Previously he had been engaged in secret prayer and then for a brief moment he had witnessed a good confession before the king. The future held for him yet more honorable service for the day was to come when he should witness for God not only in the presence of Ahab but he should discomfit and entirely rout the assembled hosts of Baal and in measure at last turn the wandering nation back again unto the God of their fathers. But the time for that was not ripe, neither was Elijah himself. The prophet needed further training in secret if he was to be personally fitted to speak again for God in public. Ah, my reader, the man whom the Lord uses has to be kept low. Severe discipline has to be experienced by him if the flesh is to be duly mortified. Three more years must be spent by the prophet in seclusion. How humbling! Alas, how little is man to be trusted! How little is he able to bear being put into the place of honor! How quickly self rises to the surface, and the instrument is ready to believe he is something more than an instrument! How sadly easy it is to make of the very service God entrusts us with a pedestal on which to display ourselves! But God will not share his glory with another, and therefore does he hide those who may be tempted to take some of it unto themselves. It is only by retiring from the public view and getting alone with God that we can learn our own nothingness. We see this important lesson brought out plainly in Christ's dealings with his beloved apostles. On one occasion they returned to him flushed with success and full of themselves. They told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Mark 6.30 Most instructive is his quiet response. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Verse 31 This is still his gracious remedy for any of his servants who may be puffed up with their own importance and imagine that his cause upon earth would suffer a severe loss if they were removed from it. God often says to his servants, Get thee hence, hide thyself. Sometimes it is by the dashing of their ministerial hopes, sometimes by a bit of affliction or by a severe bereavement, the divine purpose is accomplished. Happy the one who can then say from his heart, The will of the Lord be done. Every servant that God deigns to use must pass through the trying experience of Cherith before he is ready for the triumph of Carmel. This is an unchanging principle in the ways of God. Joseph suffered the indignities of both the pit and the prison before he became governor of all Egypt, second only to the king himself. Moses spent one-third of his long life at the backside of the desert before Jehovah gave him the honor of leading his people out of the house of bondage. David had to learn the sufficiency of God's power on the farm before he went forth and slew Goliath in the sight of the assembled armies of Israel and the Philistines. Thus it was, too, with the perfect servant, thirty years of seclusion and silence before he began his brief public ministry. So, too, with the chief of his ambassadors, a season in the solitudes of Arabia was his apprenticeship before he became the apostle to the Gentiles. But is there not yet another angle from which we may contemplate this seemingly strange order 
Get thee hence, hide thyself. Was it not a very real and severe testing of the prophet's submissiveness unto the divine will? Severe, we say, for to a robust man this request was much more exacting than his appearing before Ahab. One with a zealous disposition would find it much harder to spend three years in inactive seclusion than to be engaged in public service. The present writer can testify from long and painful experience that to be removed into a corner, Isaiah 30.20, is a much more severe trial than to address large congregations every night month after month. In the case of Elijah, this lesson is obvious. He must learn personally to render implicit obedience unto the Lord before he was qualified to command others in his name. Let us now take a closer look at the particular place selected by God as the one where his servant was next to sojourn, by the brook Cherith. Ah, it is a brook and not a river, a brook which might dry up at any moment. It is rare that God places his servants, or even his people, in the midst of luxury and abundance. To be overindulged with the things of this world only too often means the drawing away of the affections from the giver himself. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. It is our hearts God requires, and often this is put to the proof. The way in which temporal losses are borne generally makes manifest the difference between the real Christian and the worldling. The latter is utterly cast down by financial reverses and frequently commit suicide. Why? Because his all has gone, and there is nothing left to live for. In contrast, the genuine believer may be severely shaken, and for a time deeply depressed, but he will recover his poise and say, God is still my portion, and I shall not want. Instead of a river, God often gives us a brook, which may be running today and dried up tomorrow. Why? To teach us not to rest in our blessings, but in the blesser himself. Yet is it not at this very point that we so often fail, our hearts being far more occupied with the gifts than the giver. Is not this just the reason why the Lord will not trust us with a river? Because it would unconsciously take his place in our hearts. Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Deuteronomy 32.15 And the same evil tendency exists within us. We sometimes feel that we are being hardly dealt with because God gives us a brook rather than a river. But this is because we are so little acquainted with our own hearts. God loves his own too well to place dangerous knives in the hands of infants. And how was the prophet to subsist in such a place? Where would his food come from? Ah, God will see to that. He will provide for his maintenance. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook. Verse 4. Whatever may be the case with Ahab and his idolaters, Elijah shall not perish. In the very worst of times, God will show himself strong on the behalf of his own. Whoever starves, they shall be fed. Bread shall be given him, his waters shall be sure. Isaiah 33:16. Yet how absurd it sounds to common sense to bid a man tarry indefinitely by a brook. Yes, but it was God who had given this order, and the divine commands are not to be argued about, but obeyed. Thereby, Elijah was bidden to trust God contrary to sight, to reason, to all outward appearances, to rest in the Lord himself and wait patiently for him. 
I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Verse 4. Observe the word we have placed in italics, there. The prophet might have preferred many another hiding place, but to Cherith he must go if he was to receive the divine supplies. As long as he tarried there, God was pledged to provide for him. How important then is the question, Am I in the place which God has, by his word or providence, assigned me? If so, he will assuredly supply my every need. But if, like the younger son, I turn my back upon him and journey into the far country, then like that prodigal I shall certainly suffer want. How many a servant of God has labored in some lowly or difficult sphere with the dew of the Spirit on his soul and the blessing of heaven on his ministry when there came an invitation from some other field which seemed to offer a wider scope and a larger salary, and as he yielded to the temptation, the spirit was grieved, and his usefulness in God's kingdom was at an end. The same principle applies with equal force to the rank and file of God's people. They must be in the way, Genesis 24:27, of God's appointing if they are to receive divine supplies. Thy will be done precedes, Give us this day our daily bread. But how many professing Christians have we personally known who resided in a town whither God sent one of his own qualified servants, who fed them with the finest of the wheat, and their souls prospered? Then came a tempting business offer from some distant place, which would improve their position in the world. The offer was accepted, their tent was removed, only to enter a spiritual wilderness where there was no edifying ministry available. In consequence, their souls were starved, their testimony for Christ ruined, and a period of fruitless backsliding ensued. As Israel had to follow the cloud of old in order to obtain supplies of manna, so must we be in the place of God's ordering if our souls are to be watered and our spiritual lives prospered. Let us next view the instruments selected by God to minister unto the bodily needs of his servant. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee. Various lines of thought are hereby suggested. First, see here both the high sovereignty and the absolute supremacy of God, his sovereignty in the choice made, his supremacy in his power to make it good. He is a law unto himself. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. Psalm 135.6 He prohibited his people from eating ravens, classifying them among the unclean, yea, to be an abomination to them, Leviticus 11.15, Deuteronomy 14.14. Yet he himself made use of them to carry food unto his servant. How different are God's ways from ours. He employed Pharaoh's own daughter to succor the infant Moses, and a Balaam to utter one of his most remarkable prophecies. He used the jawbone of an ass in the hand of Samson to slay the Philistines, and a sling and stone to vanquish their champion. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee. Oh, what a God is ours! The fowls of the air and the fishes of the sea, the wild beasts of the field, yea, the very winds and waves obey him. Yes, thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth, shall ye not know it. I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls. 
Yes, and the ravens too, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people. Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 20. Thus the Lord caused birds of prey, which live on carrion, to feed the prophet. But let us also admire here the wisdom as well as the power of God. Elijah's fare was provided for partly in a natural and partly in a supernatural way. There was water in the brook, so he could easily go and fetch it. God will work no miracles to spare a man trouble, or that he should be listless and lazy, making no effort to procure his own sustenance. But there was no food in the desert. How is he to get that? God will furnish this in a miraculous way. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee. Had human beings been used to take him food, they might have divulged his hiding place. Had a dog or some domestic animal gone each morning and evening, people might have seen this regular journeying to and fro, carrying food, and so been curious and investigated the same. But birds flying with flesh into the desert would arouse no suspicion. It would be concluded they were taking it to their young. See then how careful God is of his people, how judicious in the arrangements he makes for them. He knows what would endanger their safety and provides accordingly. Hide thyself by the brook Cherith. I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Go immediately without entertaining any doubts, without any hesitation. However contrary to their natural instincts, these birds of prey shall obey the divine behest. Nor need this appear in the least unlikely. God himself created them, gave them their peculiar instinct, and he knows how to direct and control the same. He has power to suspend or check it according to his good pleasure. Nature is exactly what God made it and entirely dependent upon him for its continuance. He upholds all things by the word of his power. In him and by him the birds and beasts, as well as man, live, move, and have their being, and therefore he can, whenever he thinks fit, either suspend or alter the law which he has imposed upon any of his creatures. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Acts 26.8 There, in his lowly retreat, the prophet was called upon to sojourn many days, yet not without a precious promise guaranteeing his sustenance. The supply of needed provision was divinely assured him. The Lord would take care of his servant while hid from public view and would daily feed him by his miracle-working power. Nevertheless, it was a real testing of Elijah's faith. Whoever heard of such instruments being employed, birds of prey bringing food in a time of famine? Could the ravens be depended upon? Was it not far more likely that they would devour the food themselves than bring it to the prophet? Ah, his trust was not to be in the birds, but in the sure word of him that cannot lie. I have commanded the ravens. It was the creator and not the creature, the Lord himself and not the instruments, Elijah's heart was to be fixed upon. How blessed to be lifted above circumstances and in the inerrant promise of God have a sure proof of his care. Chapter 5 The Drawing Brook Get thee hence and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. 1 Kings 17 verses 3 and 4 Notice well the order here. First the divine commandment, and then the precious promise. 
Elijah must comply with the divine behest if he was to be supernaturally fed. Most of God's promises are conditional ones, and does not this explain why many of us do not extract the good of them because we fail to comply with their stipulations? God will not put a premium on either unbelief or disobedience. Alas, we are our own worst enemies and lose much by our own perversity. We sought to show in our last chapter that the arrangement here made by God displayed his high sovereignty, his all-sufficient power, and his blessed wisdom, as it also made a demand upon the prophet's submissiveness and faith. We turn now to the sequel. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. Verse 5. Not only did God's injunction to Elijah supply a real test of his submission and faith, but it also made a severe demand upon his humility. Had pride been in the ascendant, he would have said, Why should I follow such a course? It would be playing the coward's part to hide myself. I am not afraid of Ahab, so I shall not go into seclusion. Ah, my reader, some of God's commands are quite humiliating to haughty flesh and blood. It may not have struck his disciples as a valorous policy to pursue when Christ bid them, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Matthew 10.23 Nevertheless, such were his orders, and he must be obeyed. And why should any servant of his hesitate at such a command as hide thyself, when of the Master himself we read that Jesus hid himself? John 8.59 Ah, he has left us an example in all things. Furthermore, compliance with the divine command would be quite a tax on the social side of Elijah's nature. There are few who can endure solitude. To be cut off from their fellows would indeed prove a severe trial to most people. Unconverted men cannot live without company. The conviviality of those like-minded is necessary if they are to silence an uneasy conscience and banish troublesome thoughts. And is it much different with the great majority even of professing Christians? Lo, I am with you always has little real meaning to most of us. How different the contentment, joy, and usefulness of Bunyan in prison and Madame Guyon in her solitary confinement. Ah, Elijah might be cut off from his fellows, but not from the Lord himself. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. Without hesitation or delay, the prophet complied with God's command. Blessed subjection to the divine will was this to deliver Jehovah's message unto the king himself, or to be dependent upon ravens, he was equally ready. However unreasonable the precept might appear, or however unpleasant the prospect, the Tishbite promptly carried it out. How different was this from the prophet Jonah, who fled from the word of the Lord? Yes, and how different the sequel, the one imprisoned for three days and nights in the whale's belly, the other at the end, taken to heaven without passing through the portals of death. God's servants are not all alike, either in faith, obedience, or fruitfulness. Oh, that all of us may be as prompt in our obedience to the Lord's word as Elijah was. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. The prophet neither delayed in complying with the divine directions, nor did he doubt that God would supply all his need. Happy it is when we can obey him in difficult circumstances and trust him in the dark. But why should we not place implicit confidence in God and rely upon his word of promise? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
Has his word of promise ever failed? Then let us not entertain any unbelieving suspicions of his future care of us. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but not so his promises. God's dealings with Elijah have been recorded for our instruction. Oh, that they may speak loudly to our hearts, rebuking our wicked distrust and moving us to cry in earnest, Lord, increase our faith. The God of Elijah still lives and fails none who count upon his faithfulness. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. Elijah not only preached God's word, but he practiced it. This is the crying need of our times. There is a great deal of talking, but little of walking according to the divine precepts. There is much activity in the religious realm, but only too often it is unauthorized by, and in numerous instances contrary to, the divine statutes. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves, James 1.22, is the unfailing requirement of him with whom we have to do. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. 1 John 3.7 Alas, how many are deceived at this point. They prate about righteousness, but fail to practice it. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 7.21 And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank at the brook. Verse 6. What proof was this that he is faithful that promised? Hebrews 10.23. All nature shall change her course rather than one of his promises fail. Oh, what comfort is there here for trusting hearts. What God has promised he will certainly perform. How excuseless is our unbelief. How unspeakably wicked our doubtings. How much of our distrust is the consequence of divine promises not being sufficiently real and definite unto our minds. Do we meditate as we ought upon the promises of God? If we were more fully acquainted with him, Job 22:21, if we set him more definitely before our hearts, Psalm 16:8, would not his promises have far more weight and power with us? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Philippians 4:19. It is profitless to ask, how? The Lord has 10,000 ways of making good his word. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, 
T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.